0: Please stand for the reading of God's word. Philippians 4, verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of God. Uh, but let's talk about these last four words of verse 8. Think about these things. In these words and in these verses, Jesus is inviting us to allow him to transform the way that we think, to transform our thought processes. This is about discipleship of the mind. And this is a text which invites us into a spiritual discipline of self-examination in which we ask ourselves a few simple questions. Here's a question for you to ask yourself. What do I think about? Just as I'm going throughout my day, what do I think about? And you could ask yourself some follow-up questions. What do I daydream about? What do I fantasize about? When I'm stressed out, what's running through my mind? Stress levels are higher than usual in the world right now. If you're, when you're feeling stressed, what are the thoughts? Are you thinking about old stuff that happened to you that you feel stuck in those memories? It's hard to get out. Are you thinking about things about the future that you're worried or anxious about? When you're stressed out, what goes through your mind? What about when you're happy? When I'm happy, what goes through my mind? What are the phrases or images or scenes that get replayed over and over in the theater of your mind? What are the scripts that keep coming up over and over? What voices are speaking in your head? You may be able to sometimes name there's people in your life that have impacted your life positively or negatively, and their voices start speaking in your head. What do I think about? That's the question. And in this text of Scripture... God the Holy Spirit is inspiring the apostle Paul to say partner with Jesus in transforming what happens inside of your head because all of us know from experience you can get stuck in cycles of thought that are very self-destructive anybody ever been there you can get stuck in cycles of thought that keep you a slave so that no matter how the day goes You're going to be stressed out and anxious and frustrated. It's also possible to get in a frame of mind in which there's peace and and there's joy, no matter what the circumstances are. So, one way to think about this is this. There's this phrase that Christians repeat a lot. It's the phrase, Jesus died on the cross and rose again to save us from our sins. You've heard that phrase a lot, haven't you, if you've grown up in church? But that phrase is bigger and deeper and richer than what we think. It means, because of what Jesus has done for me, if I trust in him, now I'm forgiven of my sins. That's true. And it means I'm adopted into the family of God. And it means one day I'll get to live in a perfect cosmos with Christ and a new creation. It means God is working through Christ to reconcile all nations to himself and to one another. It means lots of things. One of the things it means is that by God's grace, Jesus is at work in me to transform me and to liberate me, to set me free. And that that work of liberation starts inside me. It's my heart being changed. It's my thought processes being changed. So if there are cycles of thought that keep running in our heads over and over that are destructive, Jesus can liberate us from those enslaving cycles of thought. Anybody want some of that today? The good news of the gospel is it's yours in Christ, but Jesus is inviting us to participate. We're supposed to partner in this work. He'll give us the power. This is like what Paul was talking about in Philippians 2, when he said, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to work according to his good purpose. If you're feeling stuck, like I can't get out of these thought processes, the good news of the gospel is you have supernatural power to break those thought processes. The voices of people that spoke abuse or spoke... Falsehood in your life do not have to continue dominating your mental framework and the way that you live your life and the way that you feel about yourself and other people. God can break that cycle. But the call to faith and to obedience and repentance means you have a part to play. You're involved in this process. Now, to help us understand fully what's at stake, let's connect those four words, think about these things, with two other big words that have repeated, been repeated a lot throughout the book of Philippians. One of them is the word joy. Or rejoice, and the other one's the word peace. Everybody say joy. joy. Philippians 4.4, 4, a few verses back, said this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. So Paul, in this text, is inviting us Christians, you can live a life of continual, unceasing joy. Joy, not only that is with you in the good times of life, where you're saying, praise God for all these gifts I experienced this week, but even in the really hard painful, difficult seasons of life, there can be an abiding joy because we know that God is with us and that God is going to lead us out of the pain into the joy of his new creation. The other word is this word peace. It's come up a lot. Last week, Chauncey preached to us from verse 7. You got your Bible. You can look back at verse 7. And after teaching us about the importance of prayer and thanksgiving, Paul said, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding." will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So the peace of God here is being personified. He's like a security guard. And the security guard called the peace of God is standing at like a sentry at the door of your heart, at the door of your mind, and protecting you from those self-destructive cycles of thought and feeling. Isn't that a nice image? Last week talked about the peace of God, but look at what happens in verse 9. At the end of verse 9... Paul says, and the God of peace will be with you. You notice that? Last week, the peace of God will guard you. This week, the God of peace will be with you. What that change of phrase should alert us to is the reason that we can have peace and joy in Christ is because God is peace and God is joy. So when Paul is inviting us to experience peace and joy, this is about more than just psychological well-being. It is about that. It's about God healing all of our humanness, including our mental and emotional state. But this is about us getting connected to God, our Creator. Some of you have heard me quote one of my favorite lines from St. Augustine. In a prayer, St. Augustine said, God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Which means, you know, if, if I go to a really great therapist who does the Lord's work to help me break a lot of negative thought cycles from my past, but I still don't have God, I'm still not going to find lasting peace and joy. But on the flip side of that, if I find God, and I know God, and I walk with God, then even though I've still got all kinds of baggage in my suitcase that the best therapist in the world doesn't have enough time to help me unpack, I can have peace and I can have joy. Because God is peace and God is joy. We are made to know Him. We're made to experience the fullness of life that comes from God alone. Now, I'm helping you to connect these dots because what Paul's saying here in Philippians 4, 8, and 9 fits into this bigger picture in which Paul is saying to us, Christian, Jesus has died on the cross for you and rose again so that you can be brought to God. And that involves a transformation of your whole life so that you experience the peace and the joy of God. And once you've received the peace and joy of God, you can share it with others. You can't give peace and joy to others if you haven't experienced it for yourself. We got some parents in the room. Would you like to give peace and joy to your children? Listen, parents, if you want to give peace and joy to your children, step one is experience the peace and joy of God. Can't give it if you don't have it. We got some disciple makers in the room, some mentors, some leaders, some teachers, and we long to see those that we're influencing. Experiencing the joy of God. In fact, I love the phrase in 2 Corinthians when Paul is describing his disciple-making ministry. He says, not that we lord it over your faith, but we're working with you for your joy. Isn't that a great way to think about discipleship? If I'm discipling somebody, I'm trying to help them grow in their relationship with Christ. I'm working with them for their joy. But I'm not going to be able to do that if I haven't experienced it myself. I'm going to give to others what I have. And if I want to be able to give God and the peace and joy of God, I need to have that within myself. And Paul's saying there's a way of responding to the gospel, which is a lifestyle. It involves how we pray. It involves how we live. And in this text, he's saying it involves how we think. So we've got to learn how to partner with Jesus in the disciplining, the discipleship of our minds. So everybody say, think about these things. Now, for the rest of our time together, I really want to focus on answering two questions. Question one is, what do we think about? And then question two, once we've answered, what are we supposed to think about? Then, okay, that's what I'm supposed to think about. This is what I do think about, so how do I get from here to there? How do I actually change my thought processes? So let's take those two questions one at a time. What should we think about? Earlier, we asked those self-examination questions. What do I daydream about? What fantasies run through my head? What am I afraid of? When I'm feeling anxious, what am I thinking? When I'm feeling happy, what am I thinking? What are the scripts or the images or the phrases that get repeated? Well, let's talk about what some good answers to that question would be. That's what verse 8 is all about, of course. Let's read it one more time. Finally, brothers. By the way, the Greek word is adelphoi here. It's brothers and sisters. So sisters, is not trying to leave you out here. Family of God. Brothers and sisters. Whatever is true. Whatever is honorable. Whatever is just. Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, there's a lot packed into here, but I want to start by emphasizing one word, which we might be quick to overlook, even though it's repeated a lot. It's the most repeated word in this verse. You can look at it. Somebody call it out. What's the word that comes up most? Whatever. That's the word. Whatever, in this context, is a glorious word. Everybody say, whatever. When Paul says, whatever, he's cueing us into, repeatedly, into the fact that this verse is a, a broad, liberating, inclusive verse, not a narrow, confining, exclusive verse. This verse is God's invitation to think about and to enjoy His goodness and truth and beauty wherever we find it in all of God's creation. That's what it's about. Everybody say, whatever. Now, to understand the importance of whatever here, we can contrast this with a certain well-intended, zealous, but ultimately misguided and self-defeating brand of Christianity that I've seen sometimes. I've run into some zealous, especially young Christians, who sort of feel like It's sinful to want to do anything other than read my Bible and maybe go pass out tracts. You ever know anybody like that? You try and live that way for a while, and it's like, if you listen to any music that doesn't say Jesus every four words, it's like, sinner, and they can come at you hard. And uh, there's this sense in which, if you enjoy any of God's creation, that's sinful. Now, if you put it like that, it already doesn't sound very good, does it? Remember what God said in Genesis after he created everything? God looked at everything he had made, and he said, it is very good. It is very good. God enjoys his creation, so maybe we shouldn't try to be more spiritual than God. Drag with me. Now, there is a reality here that within the world, there's all sorts of sinful stuff. There's all sorts of destructive stuff. The world is good. Creation is good because it's created by God. But sin has infected everything within creation, which is why we get warning verses like 1 John 2.15. Here's what it says. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, I've known some sincere, zealous, well-intended young Christians who they read a verse like that and they think, again, it's just kind of like it's got to have a Bible verse slapped on it or it's sinful to enjoy it, sinful to think about. Schoolwork is a waste of time. My job is a waste of time. And really what they're doing is narrowing down to a really tiny slice of creation and, and then saying, this little slice of creation is good. This little slice of creation is made by God and is sacred and is eternally significant. But actually what God says is, I made all of it. And I, it's all good. And I want you to enjoy all of it. Uh, so what, what John is saying when he says, don't love the world or the things in the world. The world here doesn't mean God's good creation. It means the anti-God beliefs and values and ideologies that infect human society. He's warning us, don't let demonic, anti-God thoughts and values seep into your life and make you a captive. He also may be warning us here, it is possible to love good things that God has made inordinately, like food and drink are made by God, but we all know there's such a thing as drunkenness. That's not good, right? You know, so many of God's good gifts can get twisted, they can get perverted, We're supposed to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, love our neighbors as ourselves, and then delight in all God's good creation. But Christian maturity involves this discernment and this uh, self-control such that we are ready and willing and able to look at anything good in God's creation and worship God for it and enjoy it and say, glory, hasn't God made a wonderful world? And yet at the same time, we're ready to drop any of those good things at a moment's notice out of service to Christ or to our brother and sister. So it requires a discernment to know what is good, what is evil. As Romans 12, 9 says, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Now, how do we get the discernment? When culture comes at us, some movie comes out, and you like it, and you're trying to figure out if you should feel bad about that. Or your friends are talking about it, and you're trying to figure out if you should enjoy it or not. How do you discern? How do you get the wisdom... To know uh, if you should enjoy it or not. Or some big cultural thing happens. What's something really big that could divide us all right now? I don't know. The Black Lives Matter movement. Right? And all of a sudden there's big fights happening on the internet and in every church. About some people saying, if you don't say Black Lives Matter and hashtag Black Lives Matter, you don't love people and thus you don't love Jesus. And others saying, if you do say it, then you're giving into this worldly ideology. Did that touch too close to home for anybody to say amen? I heard it from Jared. Amen. Preaching, brother. Where did that come from? Appreciate the affirmation. Okay, I'm not about to answer the question for you right now. What I'm trying to say is when culture comes at you fast, when life comes at you fast, you're trying to discern, as a Christian, how do I navigate all this? We need discernment. We need plumb lines. Anybody know what a plumb line is? I should get somebody more good at building stuff than me to explain this. But if you take, take a string and you put something heavy at the bottom and you hold it up, it falls straight down, right? Because of gravity. And a plumb line is something that's straight that you can then use to hold it up to other things and see if that's straight too. You got it? It's a it's a like a measuring stick or a measuring rod. You use this is your criterion of evaluation. If this is straight, so I can compare other stuff to that and see if it's straight. For the Christian, the plumb line is Christ. Jesus is the criterion for evaluating What is true? What is good? As a matter of fact, if we look at the rest of the list of these words in Philippians 4 8, all of these words find their ultimate significance and meaning into relation to Jesus Christ. Whatever is true, Jesus Christ is the truth itself. Jesus is honorable. Jesus is just. Jesus is pure. Jesus is lovely. Jesus is commendable. Jesus is excellent. Jesus is worthy of praise. Everybody say, it's all about Jesus. So what we're talking about is learning how to look at all of reality, to switch the metaphor from the plumb line, let's look at all of reality through the lens of Jesus Christ and see how he can bring it into focus. Now let's talk about some of these words in more detail. Whatever is truth. So everybody say, truth. Christians are our truth people. And when Paul says whatever is true, we can think, first of all, as we said a moment ago, about Jesus Christ. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. The theologian Kevin Van Hooser summarized what that means by saying, Jesus is the truth about God, the truth about humanity, and the truth about God's relationship to humanity. Jesus is the truth about God because... He is the fullest revelation of God. He's God clothed in human flesh. So if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. When you see Jesus having compassion on the woman caught in adultery, you're seeing the compassion of God. When you see Jesus flipping tables and the temples, you're seeing the justice of God. When you see Jesus healing the woman who'd been bleeding for all those years or healing the lepers or healing the blind, we're seeing the healing power and love of God. Especially if we look at the cross of Jesus, we see the depths of God's love. And if we look at the resurrection of Jesus, we see the heights of God's power. Jesus is the truth about God. Jesus is also the truth about humanity. If you want to know what it looks like to be authentically human, you look at Jesus. He's the prototype. And Jesus is the truth about God's relationship to humanity. How can we be right with God? By grace through Jesus Christ. We can never do enough good works to earn our way back to God, but God came down to us. Jesus on the cross bore our sin, our shame, our death, so that through Christ, we can be reconciled to God. Jesus is the truth, but then we can step back and say, all truth is God's truth. All truth is God's truth. St. Thomas Aquinas made the observation, wherever you find truth, no matter who uttered it, it came from the Holy Spirit. All truth is God's truth which means that we've got some teachers in this room, anybody who devotes their life to knowing the truth and then helping other people to know their truth, that's a noble and even a sacred vocation because all truth comes from God. So Paul says, set your minds on things that are true and not on falsehoods. So earlier, when you were asking yourself the question, what do I think about? If you identify falsehoods in those thoughts, you need to find what is the truth of God that counteracts this falsehood. And you need to hide those truths of God in your heart. I'm going to lump several together. Paul says, whatever is honorable, commendable, and worthy of praise. Now, those are three somewhat different phrases, but they all basically mean the same thing. These are three ways of saying that stuff which wise people recognize to be good. So honorable is the opposite of shameful, what brings honor to God. Worthy of praise means wise people praise it. Now, there's a bunch of stuff that fools praise, uh, which is not good, right? And commendable. These are all ways of saying, um, it's it's a way of discerning, which places us in the company of the wise, and says that all that stuff which wise people commend as good, it's honorable. In the presence of Christ, you could say, isn't this wonderful, would be another way to think about it. Set your mind on those things. Now... We can already answer the question, what's the most honorable, praiseworthy thing you can think about? I'm not asking a hypothetical, rhetorical question here. Somebody shout it out. Jesus. Everybody say, it's all about Jesus. So for all of these questions, the best answer you can give is Jesus. But then we could ask the question, what else is honorable? What else is worthy of praise? What else is commendable? And we could start answering that question. I made a list. I just wrote down random things. Here, I'm going to read you my list. The way that John Coltrane plays the saxophone, that's commendable. Everything that I've ever eaten that was cooked by Joel Tooney was worthy of praise. Where is Joel? I think I saw him earlier. Back there. I need to come over to your house, eat some of your food. While I'm at it, every cup of coffee I've ever made that was brewed by John Kelsey was commendable and honorable and worthy of praise. At my house, I make coffee in the morning. But the way it usually works is I stumble half-alive into the kitchen, grab a cake cup and stick it in the Keurig. And for what it's worth, I enjoy it. But if you drink a cup of coffee made by John Kelsey, it's a work of art, right? Great poetry written by T.S. Eliot or Gerard Manley Hopkins or Langston Hughes. That's commendable. Great novels written by Fyodor Dostoevsky. Now I'm sounding nerdy. Some of y'all are like, what is this guy even talking about? The way that Kyrie Irving dribbles a basketball, that's worthy of praise. That's the first person I've had agree with me about anything on my list so far. Y'all can make your own list. Just making my list here. Chauncey Shiloh salsa dancing is honorable, commendable, worthy of praise. Sheila Francisco singing is honorable. I was thinking about the way that the sunlight comes through the pine needles in, on the pine tree in my backyard early in the morning. It's worthy of praise. Better yet, when one of my little kids comes and sits in the hammock under that pie tree in the morning and snuggles up to me with a little soft blanket and we look at the light coming through those pine needles together, that's commendable. What I'm saying here is Paul is saying, lift your eyes from those negative thought cycles that keep you tied up in the shame of your past. Jesus already covered the shame of your past with his blood. Lift your eyes from those negative thought cycles. That keep you tied up with fears about the future. Being anxious for tomorrow doesn't make tomorrow any better. And it makes today a lot worse. Right? Tomorrow is in God's hands. Lift your eyes up from that shame and from that fear. And instead, look around and say the world is glorious. Look at the world that God has made. Praise be to God. Whatever is just, Paul says. And whatever is excellent. I'm going to put these two together. Paul saying, think thoughts about justice. Think thoughts about righteousness. Think thoughts about moral excellence. This word excellent in Roman culture was a word that meant virtue or moral excellence. God loves righteousness. God loves justice. One of my favorite verses is Jeremiah nine twenty three through 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. God delights in it. I I would say, Christians, we need to find moral and spiritual heroes. People who inspire us. That's part of the reason why I tell stories. Uh, over and over again about some of my moral heroes. We need people who inspire us. I just finished a biography of Dorothy Day. She spent her whole life praying, serving the poor, advocating for justice, and writing a news- writing and editing a newspaper that was trying to get a Christian moral witness out into the world. Her life was just filled with justice. It was filled with moral excellence. And reading her story inspired me to lift my eyes from my own problems and think bigger thoughts, think higher thoughts. Finally, so not finally, there's two more. I'm going to go quick though. Whatever is pure, whatever is pure, everybody say pure. Pure. Now this is a word that comes from old Testament roots and it refers to that which is undefiled under the old Testament law for a sacrifice to be offered to God. It needed to be pure and undefiled. So Once again, we can ask the question, where do we find the ultimate pure and undefiled sacrifice? The answer is going to be Jesus to all these questions. Just I'm going to help you out. Everybody say, it's all about Jesus. Jesus is the Lamb of God, the flawless, pure sacrifice who bore our sin so that we could be counted pure in the sight of God. Now, if we're thinking about this concept of purity as a criterion for our thought life, here's a way to think about it. Whatever my mind is set on, is it energizing my life of worship, or is it distracting from and defiling my life of worship? That's the way to think about it. This music I'm listening to, does it energize me to worship God, or does it distract my thoughts and bring them down into some sort of gutter? Can I worship God while enjoying this experience? Does it enhance worship, or does it detract? That's what is pure. Finally, last one on the list, whatever is lovely. Now the word loveliness means that which gives delight. And this way it's, it's very close to uh, the concept of beauty, that which when seen gives delight. And Paul is once again saying, Wh- whatever is beautiful in the world is from God and it's delightful because it points you back to God. As a matter of fact, one of my quotes, my favorite quotes from this Dorothy Day um, biography and, and I've been reading about her life was, she made the statement, the world will be saved by beauty. And she was partly talking about her own experience. She was an atheist who was wandering far from God. She had a, a deep spiritual hunger and she had a moral longing. Um, but she, maybe atheist isn't actually the, quite the right word. She had a longing for God, but she felt like all the organized religion she had ever seen was oppressive and destructive. But then something happened, namely, she had a baby. And when she had this baby, she looked at it, it was so beautiful. And it was so alive that she felt, I've got to be able to tell somebody, thank you for this. So she went to church so she could tell God, thank you. And then she embraced the gospel and became a follower of Christ. What what her life was bearing witness to was when we see the beauty of God everywhere, it's designed by God to move us to worship. So we've got this list, whatever's true, let's read it. Look, Look at verse eight again, whatever's true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, everybody say, think about these things. Now, I'm willing to bet that for a lot of us in here, if we did what verse 8 said, it would be pretty revolutionary for our life. Anybody want to admit it? Everyone want to raise a hand say amen and something like this? Okay, we've got several honest people in the room. If we did this, it would be revolutionary for our life. It would do exactly what Paul's teaching us it would do. It would open our hearts and our minds and lives to God so that worship wouldn't be this little thing that fits into these little slices of our schedule, like church or devotional time in the morning. But worship could be all of life. And it would give us a peace and a joy that we could share with others. So now we've got to ask the question, how do you learn to think like that? How do you train your mind? And really, that's a question that we could spend the rest of our lives answering here. But I, I will say, let's, let's start to give a few pointers that we can work on this week. And perhaps God will make these a means of grace for us. First, I want to give you, point out to you two hints that are there in verse 9. I haven't talked about verse 9 much yet, but let's, let's read it one more time. Give your attention with me to verse nine. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Okay, two hints here. First hint here is we need to connect our thoughts with practice, with what we do in our lives. Verse eight said, think about these things. Verse three says, practice these things. I'm sorry. Verse nine says, practice these things. They go together. Now, this is a word especially for, there's some people in this room who, like me, you're kind of prone to skepticism, and you're always asking questions, and sometimes you pretend it's because you're an intellectual, but it's really just because you're skeptical, and you struggle to put things into practice. Here's something that we need to understand. The spiritual life won't work if we try to go about it saying, I've got to figure everything out, and then maybe I'll act on it. Did you hear that? The spiritual life will not work if we go through our life saying, I've got to figure everything out and then maybe I'll act on it. If you want to get more truth from God, here's the, the first step. Act on the truth God has already given you. If you want to get more truth from God, step one is act on the truth God has already given you. Why would God download the next truth for you if you haven't acted on this one yet? It's true that what we believe and what we think about shapes our actions, but it's actually also true that the decisions that we make and the actions that we take are either going to muddy our thinking and cause our thoughts to go away from God, or they're going to open our minds and our thoughts to God. So our actions shape our truths, it works or shape our thinking. It goes both ways. So we need to connect our thought to practice, put into practice the things God has already taught us. A simple application of this is if we hear this message and walk away and don't put into practice any of the things in this list of things to do in our life, it won't help. right? But if we listen to this message and then pray about it and spend some time in community, in our community groups discerning what action steps can I take to change my thought processes, God might use that as the first step towards some really profound transformation in our lives. Second observation from verse 9 is we need more than sermons. We need more than books, we need more than podcasts, we need relationships, and we need mentors. Because in verse 9, Paul doesn't just say, whatever you've heard from me, he says, whatever you've seen in me, when you've watched my life, we need to be deeply enmeshed in Christian communities so we've got relationships, we've got mentors that can help us. Proverbs thirteen twenty says, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. When you find yourself in a community of people that are living this stuff out, then over time God can use that to transform your lifestyle and your way of thinking. Now I'm going to rapid fire, before I finish today, just give you a list. If you wanted to start working on transforming your thoughts, here's several other things that you could do. You ready? Note takers, this is your moment. The moment you've been waiting for. Here's a list. I might even put numbers on it for you. Number one, we need to constantly meditate on the word of God. This is something that the Bible teaches us over and over and over. We need to meditate on the Word of God day and night, as Psalm 1 puts it. Which, you know, what we're doing right now, hearing the Word of God preached, is one step towards that. But we could go much deeper. We can go much more. Guys, think about this. When you pick up a Bible, you can hold it in your hands. I mean, it's a big book, but it's not that big. You can read the whole thing. Depending on your size of print, it's like a thousand pages, right? You can read the whole thing. You could read the whole thing in a month if you wanted to, in a year if you keep your New Year's resolution, right? You could read the whole thing. And in that book that you can hold in your hands, what you're holding is the very words that the creator of the universe thought that humanity most needed if we were going to know him and fulfill his purpose for our lives. Why in the world would we think we could touch that book a couple times a week And then the rest of the week, fill our heads with all kinds of other stuff and think that we'd be making progress towards human fulfillment. It's just not going to work. But the privilege that we have when we open up the Bible, when we learn to pray with the Psalms, when we learn to feast on the stories in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, the Gospels. When we read the whole book as our book, it can begin to reprogram our thought processes, transforming us by the renewal of our mind. Number two. Especially, we need to meditate much on the gospel, which is the good news of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. Every day, wake up preaching the gospel to your own soul, saying, I'm a bigger sinner than I thought, but God loved me more than I dared to dream. I don't have to defend myself and act like I'm not a sinner. I can open myself up to the reality that I'm a work in progress, that there's good in me because I'm made by God, but there's also sin in me that needs to be fought. But I don't have to be perfect right now in order to be loved by God. I can have joy because Christ died for me and rose again. Think much about the gospel. Three, we need to bring our thoughts to God constantly in prayer. One of the most helpful spiritual disciplines I, I can commend to you to reprogram thought processes is before you lay down or before you go to sleep at night, spend some time pouring out your heart to God about whatever you're thinking and feeling. You want to write it down in a journal, you can. But Psalm 62:8 says, "Trust in the Lord at all times. Pour out your hearts before Him." Sometimes, if I'm leading groups through a retreat, I'll just put Psalm 62:8 on the top of a piece of paper, and then I'll give them a piece of paper to fill out. And it just says it's a prayer, but uh, it's, help, it's there to help people pray. But the, it's got these little one-liners, and it says, "God, I'm excited about," and it just got a bunch of spaces for them to fill it in. "God, I'm scared about." Got a bunch of spaces to fill it in. God, I long for. Got a bunch of spaces. God, I'm thankful for. And it's just this exercise of we've got thoughts going on in our head all day long. Let's just bring them to God. And what you'll find is as you bring those thoughts to God, casting your burdens on God and giving thanks to him for his blessings, God's going to do exactly what Paul said he would do in verse seven. The peace of God will flood your heart. And you'll begin to get God's perspective on it. Finally, last point here, because we're past time. The obvious thing that our mamas and grandmas taught us to true is actually right. We need to cut out all the stuff in our lives that gets us stuck in those negative thought processes. Meaning, hey, if there's books and movies and music in your life that gets you in self-destructive thought cycles... Maybe find a better book or some better music or a better movie. Now, I can feel already that some people in the room might be thinking, John Mark, are you being legalistic and telling me I can't watch my favorite movie? Well, that depends. Is your favorite movie liberating or does it get you in self-destructive thought cycles? Because really, I don't feel like it's very oppressive to say if this thing gets you in self-destructive thought cycles, maybe don't do that thing. And that's all that I'm saying here. Some of us um, are going through life acting like, I can be foolish with what I pour into my mind and then experience joy and peace and spiritual growth and it just won't work. There's so much goodness. Remember that big word whatever that we started with? Everybody say whatever. Whatever you find that moves you to worship. Whatever you find that causes you to say, isn't God good? Whatever you find that moves you to pursue truth, feast your mind on that and cut out the stuff that's feeding those negative cycles. Now I want to end today. There's much more that could be said about this. But I want to end today by just reminding you of this gospel word. As you're starting down this journey, or continuing down this journey for many of us in this room, here's a gospel word before we take the Lord's Supper. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. It means a lot of things. but Two of the things it means is this. Jesus Christ already knows better than you how negative some of your thought cycles are and loves you anyway, Right? So if you're feeling right now that the Holy Spirit's bringing conviction into your heart that there's a lot of room for growth in this area, um, I just want to encourage you. God already loves you. God already loves you. He wants to help you make progress, but you don't have to take one step of progress to be loved and accepted by God. You've trusted in Christ. Your sins are already covered. They're under the blood. He accepts you just as you are. If you haven't trusted in Christ, all you got to do right now is trust in Christ. But the second gospel word that comes with that is, As you enter into this journey of discipleship of the mind, you don't go in your own power. Not only did Jesus die on the cross for your sins, but he rose again so that you could participate in the power of his resurrection life. He's going to give you power to break those cycles and to learn to think the thoughts of peace if you'll let him. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we love you and thank you for your grace. Lord, in our lives, there are so many things that could distract us, even, even this afternoon. There's many things that could distract us. I'm just asking for the help of your Holy Spirit, that this word that you have spoken to us from the scriptures would go deep into our hearts. Lord, I need it. And I know there's dozens and dozens of people in this room right now who are joining joining us through the internet who desperately need the freedom of a mind that's been renewed by Jesus. So in the days and weeks and months to come, would you help us by your Holy Spirit to be transformed by the renewal of our mind? Would you help us to identify destructive thought patterns and to, and the power of the Spirit, replace them with the truth of your word, to open our lives to that which is truly honorable and beautiful and good and to turn away that which defiles and distracts us from worship. We pray these things in Jesus' name.